Howdy folks, this is Omar Crook. You're listening to Living with a Genius. On this episode, I spoke with Georgia Stitt, darling of Broadway, uh, terrific pianist, composer, librettist, arranger, raconteur, uh, and just all-around lovely person. She and her husband, Jason Robert Brown, were here in Los Angeles um, for a gala at Disney Hall for the Master Chorale. And uh, in the limited amount of time she had here in town, she um, very graciously carved out a couple hours to come and sit down with me here at the house. So it was really great, and um, she's a lovely lady. I loved seeing her, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks for listening. So what I was saying is that the, um, the format of the podcast is super informal. As a matter of fact, the title of the podcast totally belies the style of the podcast. Because okay. I'm really a kind of a knucklehead. So um, <laughs> I'm in no way a genius. <laughs> so that's that's the whole thing. Um, so we just have a chat. Okay. We can always edit stuff out. You know, if you especially... I've done uh, zero prep. I thought, I don't, even, oh, I have, I don't I, even know what you're going to ask. Same with me. I mean, I have some... I've, I never write questions. Because I, I really... Part of it is that I've been interviewing all my friends. Oh, yeah. So you know. Yeah, so I kind of know. So I did kind of cheat. So I start. So I've got a, a piece of paper here. Well, we'll see where it leads. I can maybe guide you. First thing is Disney Hall Gala. <sighs> yeah, so that's why you're in LA. That's why I'm here. It is so that's great. First of all, it's great to see you. Thank you. I haven't seen you in years. It has been a long time. I mean, it's probably been, I don't know, pr probably eight years or so. Has it been that I long? I mean, I think really? you guys had just. Jason was teaching. He had just gotten a job at teaching at USC. Mm -hmm. That's what brought us to LA in the first place. Yeah. So I think that it must have been it, at least six or seven years that's right well we've been gone from LA for three years now right which, uh, it seems like it's it's gone in a flash um, but we we lived in LA for eight and a half years mm -hmm. I keep saying eight years and my husband keeps saying nine years so it's <laughs> just split the difference <laughs> I guess there is a factual answer that neither of us is willing to well look at up. least you guys are egalitarian so that's good. <laughs> eight and a half seems to be somewhere in there right um, and then we moved back to New York uh, this summer it'll be three years ago and we seem to be living in both places a lot now. Yeah. You know, our work is more centered around Broadway musicals and, and that kind of um, development and writing shows, which is very New York-centric, more sure. so New York-centric. We did some of it while we lived in L.A., but we found that we were both alternating, taking times, being on planes, going uh -huh, back and forth uh -huh. to New York. Um, but the thing that I miss about L.A. the most is being connected to the classical music world, which I'm not as much in New York. Um, but everyone from uh, obviously the LA Master Chorale sure. to um, the radio station, the radio caster, the newscasters on the radio. Um, yeah, on and KUSC we've got and, and don't forget we've got Gustavo Dudamel. We do. It's very exciting. <laughs> I say we like he's mine. <laughs> he's totally mine. Um, no, it's a very exciting community that I feel like I was a part of. And yeah. so uh, while I was here, I wrote a lot of choral music. You know, it's funny in preparation. Uh, for this interview, I listened to your choral music. You did. It's so beautiful. Thank you. The counterpoint, the... Thank you. The, I mean, it's really lovely. I love doing it, and I... Um, yeah, it really shows. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I, f I find as a person in the musical theater, obviously in musical theater, you have lots of opportunity to write choral music for mm -hmm. the ensembles of your company, mm -hmm. and I think I learned a lot of how to do it in the course of writing musicals. Um, but the idea of having choirs uh, work on pieces that are not connected to musicals right. has been very appealing to me, and it, it combines with some of the work I did starting in college and afterwards writing art songs, setting poetry. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a way to blend those worlds. And my choral music tends to be very more theatrical, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and the lyrics are storytelling in the same way that musical theater songs are. But it, just having that many voices to play with, an opportunity to have create texture and, sure. and harmony in and that way. And it's a different sing. It's a different uh, technically technically a different singing style. So you get That's a right. different, obviously, a different uh, quality to the sound once it's all put together. That's right. And you don't find that you have that opportunity as much back east, or are you just so busy writing what you typically do, which is Broadway? Well, I, I think I just haven't made the relationships with choirs in New York uh -huh. as much. And so I'm a, and the work, uh, the theater writing is taking up more of my time, mm -hmm. you know, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. We'll say for better. Right. Um, but I have less opportunity. I was a um, composer in residence for a church here at mm -hmm. the Pasadena Presbyterian Church. Sure. And so everything that I wrote for choir, they performed. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and, and in some cases, they said, will you write a hymn for this occasion? Will you write... Um, you know, call and response music for mm -hmm. this occasion, and I did. So now I have this body of liturgical music that mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure what to do with. Yeah, well, it's, on, um, it's living on your website, and I really enjoyed it. It's that's beautiful. Good. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's good. So, so for the Master Chorale, yeah. uh, my husband, Jason Rump Brown, and I were uh, co 
chairs of the annual gala. Mm-hmm. And how um, did that come about? Did, did did Grant call you out of the they blue? Just or asked, yeah, Grant asked us. You oh. know, asked us. Their theme was um, bro- I can't Broadway on Grand. Yes. I think so. They were looking for a way to combine the Broadway world. Um, Jason has performed with the Master Crowd before and has choral music. Um, we we did the Old Red Hills of Home, which is the opening number from Parade, mm-hmm. which is I think one of the great pieces of choral writing Absolutely. in the Broadway canon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then Grant had done my piece, The Promise of Light before with the high school, mm-hmm. you know, that he, I can't remember the festival of high school voices or I, right, I'm not sure right. what the exact title of that is, mm-hmm. but a thousand voices of high school students wow. had sung my music before in Disney hall wow. and they sit in the seats and he stands on stage and conducts, and conducts out. From, wow. Um, so the only musician on stage is the pianist and then the choir fills up the rest of Disney Hall. So I got to sit there and hear. You didn't even have to play the piano for the, that. No, when they, they've done it twice and I sat um, uh, upstage behind the, you know, where the seats yeah, are yeah, right under the organ. Yeah, the organ, by the pipes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I sat there and listened to a thousand high school students sing my. <laughs> at, literally at you from the seats. Literally at wow. me. Like, and they could see me sitting oh my there God. by myself. Um, so that was pretty astounding. So Grant uh, knew that piece. And then um, he also did, it's not the premiere, but it is the second performance of a new piece that I have written that I wrote for the Hilton Head uh, Choral Society mm-hmm. um, that is called Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep. It's a poem setting that I had written, and I've actually orchestrated it too. So I'm still mm-hmm. looking for that performance. Okay. Um, but it was just great to get to live in this world for a little while. Yeah, speaking of living in this world, let's talk about Los Angeles. Yay! Um, so you were brought here by Grant to do this great gala at Disney Hall. Mm-hmm. We were just talking outside, and you were telling me that you know you kind of conflicted about uh, living in New York and how much you like California. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I'm the girl that it, I grew up in Tennessee, outside of Memphis, mm-hmm. and I I had a a sign over my door that said Broadway. I was that kid. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I, but then all my training is classical. I have a, um, a music composition undergrad, um, and then I have a master's degree in musical theater writing, so that's when the crossover began. But uh-huh. until I was in my 20s, I was writing string quartets and symphonies sure. and things like that. Um, but I but I became a Broadway girl as soon as I moved to New York. And, and there, Broadway doesn't exist anywhere else in the same form. That's there right. certainly is theater music and there are Broadway the kinds of cup, shows yeah, everywhere. Tour, but tours, the center uh-huh. of where musical theater is born and where it's developed to me is New York City. And right. there, you know, there's in London and Seattle and even Los Angeles, there are places where that is done. But it's, it's mm-hmm. all with a nod to what they're doing in New York. So, mm-hmm. so y- if you want to be in the center of where it's happening, you sure. are in New York City. And that's still where I find um, the most success, the, the community of people that understand what I'm doing and that, are, that know how to support it and develop it. Um, but then when you come to Los Angeles, uh, certainly there's a community of musicians, certainly there's a community of theater people, and then there's mm-hmm. the beach and uh-huh. the warm weather, That's and, right. and we still have an, a number of friends here. Yeah. Um, so in this case, uh, we got off the plane, we flew this weekend, got off the plane, showed up at Disney Hall in black tie where they performed our music and mm-hmm. then gave us champagne. And then the next day, <laughs> we went to the beach with our very best friends. And that night, we looked at each other like, what, what are we doing? <laughs> Why did we leave? And how is it traveling? Uh, uh, you know, we've got, we have mutual friends, Eric Whitaker and Hila Plitman. That's right. And they have a, they have a boy. That's right. And uh, they've constantly juggled travel. You know, how do you, how do you manage your schedule? How do you deal, I don't want to say deal with the kids, but within the context of your career, how do you manage uh, your family life and being parents with your busy schedules? Is, I mean, I would imagine living in New York really facilitates that, and I'm sure that's another reason to be there rather than Los Angeles. But when, when you guys have like overlapping gigs, how do you deal with that? Uh, it, I would say we spend more than 50% of our conversation time at home talking about schedules and sometimes you know an email will come in and one of us will scream don't make me open my calendar (laughs) (laughs) it's like the worst app um it's just terrifying but uh we have you know we have a lot of help we have a nanny that helps us in the after school hours Mm -hmm. um we try not to be out of town at the same time but that sometimes means a person comes home on friday and the other one leaves on saturday sure um we we try to make sure that one of us is always there for you know a parent teacher conference or a piano recital or Mm -hmm. any of the things that the kids are doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in the times when we do have to be gone, which are at the same time, we have sometimes had overnight babysitters. We have Jason's mother lives in Manhattan. Oh, so you have a support system in New York. So we have grandma. Mm -hmm. She travels a lot too, so it doesn't always work out, but that is helpful that she's there. Um, and then I'd say we have a roster of about 30 babysitters oh that are available to us. You know, n- not w- not all people that we would trust to stay overnight with our kids, sure. but certainly the people that are like, 
you know, last week we happened to have a week where we had an event every single night. Mm -hmm. And so we had, you know, our nanny stayed late one night and then somebody else came in on this. And they're, most of them are musical theater actresses. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so they, um, they come in and sing to our girls oh. and they put on costumes and they act out the score of Annie and <laughs> everybody's happy, <laughs> including the actresses who finally get to perform. <laughs> at, the, at the salon. Yes. That's funny. Shea Brown. Yeah, exactly. So you, uh, you mentioned you went through a transition <clears throat> between studying classically and falling in love well I, I I gathered that you were always in love with the theater repertoire but what what happened or was there an event that happened that that kind of um, really propelled you in one direction versus I, the other there was and it'll be I think you'll find it interesting um, as I was studying classical music and my conducting professor at Vanderbilt was John Morris Russell who mm -hmm. is now the um, conductor of the Cincinnati Pops yeah yeah um, but at the time, he was my conducting professor, and he worked every summer at College Light Opera Music, um, College Light Opera Company, on Cape Cod, mm -hmm. which is a summer, summer stock theater where we did nine shows in 11 weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and I, he asked me if I would apply to be an accompanist, to go be the pianist for the summer. Mm -hmm. um, and because you'd started with piano as a child? You'd, yes. You'd always play I'd piano? I'd been playing piano mm -hmm. since I was seven, I and see. really was um, a very facile pianist, even at college. Uh, uh, thought I could have majored in piano, mm -hmm. but I was more interested in composition. But I continued to take lessons all the way through and play the repertoire. And um, mm -hmm. and so that summer, he said, come, it's fun, it's Cape Cod, and you'll play piano all day. But then on the days off, we go to the beach. And I thought that sounded great. Sure. Um, and that summer, uh, I learned so many skills because a lot of what I learned, are, in some cases, they would give you the orchestra score and you had to reduce uh, sure. it. Sure, uh, on and site. Wow. On site. Ugh. In some cases, um, there would be uh, you know, large dance musicals and you'd think, what do they really need to hear? What do the dancers really need to hear? What do the singers really need to hear? Mm -hmm. What kind of support do I need to give them from the piano? And I think I learned so much about being a theater accompanist. I had to play in different styles. We'd do The Merry Widow one week and 42nd Street the next wow. week. Wow, okay. <laughs> um, so just immediately being able to move from one style to the next mm -hmm. um, and then different guest conductors and so you had to learn how to work with conductors and uh, what that communication is right the whole the new vernacular every time yeah and what mm -hmm. I learned most that summer was that I was thrilled I really got off on the versatility that was required the, um, the being able to move from style to style and and ultimately starting to think somebody had to write this there's a career there's a career to be had writing this music and using mm -hmm. all these skills mm -hmm. um, and, and American theater music really resonated more than, let's say, operatic repertoire at that point. I think um, I think I saw my way into it more uh -huh. realistically. I don't think that I had a door open to me in the opera world. Right. And I here was a door being opened to me in the theater world. And as I continued to step into it, it that suddenly there was a master's degree program that was teaching me how to write it, and that put me in New York City. And while I was in New York, I was... Um, you know, music directing and playing auditions and things. So I was just becoming immersed in this right, world right. and making the connections. And um, it's like the train had already left the station, and you I just happened so. to be on it. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I think um, I think the fact that I'm I, I, this is such a generalization. There are going to be people who resist this statement, but I I think that I was more interested in words telling the story than music telling the story. Uh -huh. Like I, you know, I think my frustration with opera has long been. The music is telling the story, and you may or may not understand the words, but That's it right. doesn't matter. You may or may not speak the language. You can read the words, but it's not about that. Mm -hmm. And in musical theater, it is very much about that. It's mm -hmm. about the how do the words and music work together to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'm interested in that. And mm -hmm. and a lot of what I had learned about text setting in college and composition class was were th just really great skill things about like what vowels go on what note for a high note on an E vowel is higher than harder than a high note on an A vowel. Uh, basic sure. core things that I thought this classical training is helping me apply to musical theater. Um, compositionally. Compositionally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I can use those skills, but um, but maybe write swing music and maybe write rock and roll and maybe write classical and maybe write choral. And um, and each project would generate a, a different skill set, would require a different skill set. Right, right. Huh. So that was the way in for me. But the reason I thought you might specifically be interested in that is because that summer was the summer I met Eric Whitaker. Aha! Uh -huh. That he and I, I was his accompanist. There was John Morris Russell was a conductor. Eric Whitaker was the associate conductor, and I was the rehearsal pianist. And yeah. um, and we spent the whole summer getting drunk and writing musicals yeah, he's together. Told, yeah, he's told me a few <laughs> stories about that. That's uh, it was a really fun stories time. for another time. <laughs> it was a fun time. <laughs> now is that is that how you met Jason? Were you? Not that, not, not then. That, not that early. Not that early. I, I mean, How that was that the thing that led me into uh, musical theater. But mm -hmm. I was in New York and had already graduated from uh, ma my, with my master's degree, um, 
And it turns out Jason and I have the same lawyer. It's the most romantic story ever. Well, our lawyer introduced us. Modern times. Um, but uh, I was at a point in my life where I had never been on the road with a show. Uh -huh. I had never, you know, traveled and and done the show in many different cities. And that sounded interesting and sounded like a thing you're supposed to do mm -hmm, as you're building mm -hmm. your career. Right. So I called my lawyer and said, I'd like, I'm interested in going on the road. It was a time in my personal life when that made sense. And, um, and I said, what's staffing? What shows are looking for music people? Mm -hmm. And one of them that came up was Parade, and I had just seen it at Lincoln Center. I actually, it's one of the few times I just bought a ticket and gone by myself because as I as didn't want to miss it. Mm -hmm. um, and loved it and thought it was um, really musically daring and everything that it, everybody thinks about that show was right. really great. Um, and so on the list of things were was Parade. And so my lawyer put me in touch with Jason and Jason sent over the music. And I, you know, I'm going to toot my own horn for a minute and say I'm a really good sight reader. Mm -hmm. And I, so he sent the music and I thought, oh, this is going to be fine. And it was in a manila envelope. I remember opening the manila envelope and taking out the sheet music and looking at it and really picking up the phone and saying, cancel all my appointments <laughs> for the weekend. Like, cancel that, cancel that. I'm going to have to really? be practicing all weekend. Wow. It's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard music. And it was a style of music that didn't come as easily to me. So it, um, just to be really specific, there's sort of a, Oh, I don't even like a, a rockabilly piano thing to it where in some cases like you have to use your thumb to play the grace note and the note at the uh -huh, same time. Uh -huh. And classically, you would use two fingers right. to play that. And and so everything had an elegance about it when I played it. And I had to learn how to be I learned how to play worse. <laughs> <laughs> to be inelegant. <laughs> and also to have like really strict time, like a, a, a real sense of groove and rhythm. Right. Like a drummer. Yeah. Like a drummer you that I had not learned together. as a classical pianist. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I really just hibernated in my apartment for the weekend and then went and auditioned for Jason on Monday and got the job mm -hmm. in the room, mm -hmm. um, which was wonderful. And then went out on the road and it was we were well in the, to the tour when we realized like, I like hey, you. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So we sort of fell. I mean, not sort of. We did. We fell in love on the tour and um, and then had a whole experience of coming back from the road and and having a fear, like maybe he won't like my friends, maybe I won't like his friends, sure, maybe right. this was a, they call it a showmance, maybe this was a showmance. Right. And you kind of, you do kind of live in a vacuum, you know, when you're on the road. That's right. Or everything, or your whole other life is totally suspended. That's right. Uh, and those people that were on the road with us are still some of our closest friends as a couple uh -huh. because they were there at the beginning. Right. Um, they were in our wedding and, uh, and so, but we came back and it, it worked. We didn't break up. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago was that? That was in 2000. In so 2000. Sixteen. Oh my gosh, 16 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> We've been married for, this will be 12, yeah. And then you came out to California because Jason... Uh, well, we came out because Jason was offered a job at USC, mm -hmm. and he it was a semester-long uh, appointment mm -hmm. as an artist in residence or guest faculty, or I'm not sure what the title was. Mm -hmm. And I had just finished working on a movie, um, on the music staff of a movie that was going into post-production in L.A. So Wh which movie was it that? It was Once Upon a Mattress with oh, Carol uh, Burnett uh, and yeah, Tracy Ullman. Yeah, and Ullman, yeah, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had done all the filming of that in Vancouver uh, as a music supervisor, mm -hmm. and and we were going into post production in LA. So I had to be here anyway, mm -hmm. and and he was going to come. So we thought we were going to be here for three months or so, and then while we were out here, we found a house that we liked. Yeah. And then I got pregnant, and we were like, really, we're going to move back to New York with a baby? You know, like just move back into our apartment with yeah, a baby? Yeah, yeah. Were you planning on getting pregnant? Um, I wasn't not planning on getting oh, so pregnant. It was, yeah, yeah. It wasn't an accident, but I, it also yeah, I was, got you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, but the timing just worked out. Like, by the time it was time to leave, we were buying cribs and, you know, just nesting. And there was nothing pressing in New York that you had planned that you needed to go back to? Or no. Or you just worked well, out? Well, we just adjusted our life to, to, to stick around. And like, well, maybe I'll try to be in the movie business. Yeah. And maybe I'll, you know, keep teaching at USC and see how that goes. And yeah, yeah. Part of what I think we both liked was... When you're away from New York, but still writing for New York, you can't come to every meeting that they need you to come to. Yeah. And so there's a point where you say, I can come to that, but you'll have to fly me in. And they say, oh, well, maybe we'll just do it on Skype. Mm -hmm. And eventually, uh, you're only called for the most urgent meetings. And that gives you more time to write. God, and that sounds, that sounds uh, right? great, Doesn't actually. Doesn't that sound yeah, amazing? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you start to think about how much your life is spent on going to get coffee with someone or to talk about a maybe idea or... Not that that's not valuable, but it's time that you're not writing. Yeah. And um, and so I think part of what I've learned since then, and certainly now having moved back to New York, mm -hmm. is how to preserve, how to say, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm not available because yeah. what I'm doing is taking care of me. I'm yeah, writing yeah, yeah. and there's, you know, there's a consequence if I don't write. And I have to protect that because it used to be like yeah. if somebody's asking me, I'll just show up because that might be a job and that might be an opportunity. I think and that comes with age. 
I think that's just wisdom. I mean, I used to say, I used to say maybe a lot mm-hmm. when I really meant, meant no. no. Now I just say no. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, you say no, and I, you know, I do it in a way that isn't abrasive or anything. I, I'm, you just have to say, you know, no, I'm, I'm either not interested in that or I, I'm not available. I'd or, always thank you for asking. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for, for thinking asking. of me. Uh, yeah, but I'm, like I'm going to the park with my son that day. Right, which and is I'll actually t- valuable. That's the thing. Like as I've had kids. Uh, well, as I've since I've had the second since we have, since we've had Madeline, our mm-hmm. little girl who's th- three months old, that's something I've really noticed. You know, with the first one, I was just always in the weeds. Like I, I, I was always panicked about something. Every time he'd move funny or cough or you know, it's just a like sirens would go off. And now, um, you realize you didn't kill him. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and our marriage survived, mm-hmm. uh, and everything's fine and i also see that now that my son's three and we've got this three month old how fast it goes that's right just you know uh we're going through this thing now where he he wants to sleep in bed at night with us and my my wife and i are have slightly different opinions i'm a little more relaxed about it because i i know now that i'll blink and i won't be able to pay him to hang out with me Mm -hmm. he just won't want to do it so i kind of soak it up now so anyway that brings but me that is one of the things that you learn is that it's all finite i mean my yes. older daughter is 10 now yeah. and has already moved into the phase of ugh, mom a little bit I know, you know yeah. she's in you start to understand what why they're called tweens because yeah. she is a little bit that and then a little bit like can i bring my stuffed animal on this trip yeah so there's a, a little bit of both and you just but the having a little girl is gone now that I have as a preteen and then it's going to be a teenager and then and and so I think in a lot of those moments when you're saying no to a job um instead of the fear of this job will never be offered to me again yeah what you feel like is this time with my child will never be ever again ever a a job will come yes there there are always jobs that come and some are more important than others I mean I went to South America this last summer to premiere a piece um and it took me away Mm -hmm. and it was a hard decision we had a new baby and um and I had to go. I mean, that that's a job that probably won't come back. Right. It's a premiere. Right. And I get to travel, you know, high class to South America. So you do pick and choose, but I definitely pick and choose a lot more than I used to. Yes. Now at this age, you know. Um, and, you know, Amy is a singer and she's now she's now raising our kids. So it's uh, it's I have to be careful. Right. You know, how about you and Jason? Do you guys struggle with? We um, struggle with it a lot. And I, you know, one of the organizations that I'm really involved with in New York City is the Lilly Awards Foundation, Mm -hmm. named after Lillian Hellman. And it's um, it's a women in theater organization. Mm -hmm. You know, they we produce the Lilly Awards that celebrate women in theater. And we do a cabaret every fall that is that I produce and music direct. That is how um, long has that been going on? The organization's been going on for six years. I see. My involvement, this will be my third year with it because mm-hmm. I, I just got involved right when we moved back to New York. Mm-hmm. But so gender parity is at the forefront of a lot of our conversations. Right. And then Jason's collaborator on several of his pieces is Marsha Norman, who is also at the forefront of women. I mean, she created the Lilly Awards, mm-hmm. and that's part of my connection to it. But she also always writes pieces that have women at the center of them. She says she writes about trapped women that mm-hmm. over and over again about women who are trying to get out of their traps. Um, and Jason keeps saying, like, I'm surrounded by all of these feminists. And so it's made me a feminist <laughs> and it's made me rethink my conversation about, like, what I'm writing and what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And, and so I say, yay, good, more feminists, make your men <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. Um, that feminism is not just a women-centric thing. But really, ultimately, where it comes down to is I, I find a lot that when you have children, there's a, there's a division of labor that's just expected. Like, that's right. And, you know, and a lot of times when we have fights... Um, it's me saying, why is it just assumed that I'm the one that's going to do this, mm-hmm. that I'm the one that's going to figure out what kind of summer camp they're going to go to, or that I'm the one packing their trip for the trip. Or, or just getting out to the damn car. Yes. You any know. of that. Yeah. <laughs> any of that. And so we've had, you know, over time, the evolution of maybe I am the one doing that. But in exchange, you can always plan our trips. You can book all the plane tickets and you can, I don't want everyone to worry about that. So mm-hmm. it's, it, it's not necessarily about every job being split in half 50, 50, right. but it's how does the, the marriage feel like. You're doing a whole lot of this, therefore I'm going to do a whole lot of this to balance. Well, it out. I'm glad you brought that up because um, my wife and I, uh, we, I remember when we got married, we went through a few months of real, just really difficult times, and I couldn't, I didn't understand why, um, and it was, it boiled down to expectation. I had these expectations. I'm an only child. My mom uh, really worked hard for me and did a lot of things for me, cooked and cleaned and did 
you know, she was a, a, a housewife mm-hmm. of, of the first caliber. And um, so when we got married, I, I had those expectations that I didn't even realize. And we had to really sit down and talk about the division of labor and what was expected and how flexible it can be. And, and then since we had children and Amy's singing less, she still sings, but she's singing less, I, I really have to be um, conscious of not hurting her feelings, um, being proud of my work, but not gloating, um, mm-hmm. not being competitive and, and making sure that she doesn't feel like she needs to be competitive. I try and tell her every day what a great, I, I don't even like to say what a great job she does because that sounds strange to me, but she's a great mom mm-hmm. and she's a great wife. And um, it's easy to, for me to forget to give her that because I get praise outside of the house all the time uh, through what I do professionally. And I think she kind of misses that a little bit. Um, I'm sure that's a really interesting perspective. And I'm wondering, do you guys have a competition? Like, a, do you have a professional competition between the two of you? Is that, has that ever been an issue? <laughs> is, that, is that like um, a thing that, that you guys... It's a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really complicated to talk about because we, we try to protect it certainly uh-huh. in sure. our relationship and mm-hmm. we try not to compete i mean jason jason really even more so than i jason tries to to make sure that we don't ever work together that we don't you know there have been cases where um like if one of us is doing a recording session one can play and the other can conduct because right. we have very compatible skills right. in terms of that sort of work um and there have been times where he sings on my demos or i sing or play on his demos or mm-hmm. that sort of thing but really when it comes down to shows it it became clear years ago that i wasn't going to music direct his shows because there there comes a point where the writer's work is done the mm-hmm. writer gets to leave and move on to the other thing mm-hmm. and then the conductor s- is still there conducting the show every night mm-hmm. and and so in terms of the practicality of that work um, neither of us wanted a situation where he could then go write another show, but I was stuck conducting his show. You know, mm-hmm. it would make it seem much less glamorous. Well, I've always situation. seen you guys both as being gardens mm. rather than most, m- most relationships. There's a, a, a garden mm-hmm. and a gardener. Interesting. And I kind of see both of you guys as being like gardens. And that's why I asked. It's like, that's um, really a nice, you know, I, I had a, a, a boyfriend before Jason who said that, um, he was a stage manager, and mm-hmm. he said that every relationship needed a helium balloon and a string. That's right. And I think it's the same it's thing. The same the thing. One person gets to be the helium balloon, and the other person is the string. That's right. And when Jason and I started dating, at the very You're beginning, we said, we're both balloons. <laughs> Who's going to be the string? And I think we have a network of people that we pay a lot of money to, nannies and assistants and helper people to and help the grandma, strings. you know, who are our strings. Yeah. Um, and I think when the relationship falls into imbalance, it's when one person starts to feel too much like the string. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. right. I think, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people outside of uh, show business or the entertainment business, um, and I, I don't know if that's a, an issue as much. Uh, first of all, I think the uh, show business attracts a certain type of person. Um, and when you put two people from show business together, they're sometimes incompatible that way. And we've been, I've been very lucky with Amy in that she's, she's a tremendous uh, musician and a great singer. But she also gets a lot of um, enjoyment and fulfillment from being a mom mm-hmm. and from taking care of me. I mean, she has three kids, basically, because I, I, <laughs> I don't know how I to do anything. <laughs> we talked about getting a dog, and I said, I already have three children. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like you guys have have figured it out. I, um, oh, it's ongoing. I wouldn't it, say that we figured it out, you know, but it's, but we're it aware of it. Thing? Is, like, is it an ego thing sometimes where, st- like about tooting, tooting your horn louder uh, than the other? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it, it's making sure that the horn is getting tooted. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. All, yeah, I mean, know? it's your business. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like uh, that he's not good at this or he's not aware of it. He's, he's really excellent at making sure that, that I have a chance to be heard. And, and you know, then, then the, the balance falls in the other way where I think I don't want the world to think I'm only in this room because Jason invited me in. You know, I want right, to right. make sure that they know that I deserve to be here. So it's, right. for me, it's a, it's a balance. It's, n- it's less about ego and, and more about making sure that, that I'm continuing to do the work to deserve to be in the room mm-hmm. and then realizing that, anyone who's in the room has been invited in by somebody. That's you know? right. So if my husband is the one that invited me in or someone that I know through my husband has invited me in, so be it. I still will get kicked out of the room if I don't b- deserve to be there. That's so right. 
So you do you can compartmentalize between your personal lives and your professional lives. Like when you're on a gig, uh, you must see each other a little bit differently. Like I that's learned. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. That's learned. We had <laughs> we had one uh, story of um, an experience with. Oh, it's horrible. It makes me horrible. But we were <laughs> we were in Asia. We were performing in Asia with a, an orchestra. Jason was conducting. I was playing the piano, and we were the only guests. Everyone else was. This was in Singapore, mm-hmm. and um, and Jason was. There was just a moment that wasn't clear, and it was two or three times it wasn't clear. <laughs> and I, without even thinking, I said, "Jason, your downbeat's not clear." Like the pianist said that to the conductor. <laughs> it was such a breach of protocol, and he gave me a look of like. How dare you in this moment? (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, that was the wife speaking to the husband in in a way that I thought would be helpful. And I have totally overstepped my bounds. And so I, you know, humbly subjugated yourself. It's hard to it's hard to remember and had to like apologize profusely in a way that was like, I don't want you to think I can't be your pianist anymore because I'm going to be an upstart. Right. So you have to apologize way over, way overboard. I understand that that was, you know, and. And and then thinking, well, if I had been the conductor and he had been the pianist, would he have had the same humility? You know, would he have? I mean, if, that's right. Would you would have said thank you? Would you have said thank you, darling? <laughs> Probably not. But let's see. But wouldn't it be great if we could all take our egos out of the room and just do the work? That would be amazing. But no, of course, we're all humans, and we all have moments where you're like, "This is about me being right and me being seen and yeah, me being, yeah. you know, having my moment." Now and I, I think that's hard. What you said about your relationship with your wife rings very true. That. Um, there are times when, when he comes home from an event, event and he's like, this was great and this was great and this was great. And I'm like, and nobody saw me. Yeah, and you're covered in vomit and you've got yeah. uh, cereal in the sink. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And then sometimes it's flipped. So I think for us it's about making sure that each person has a moment, that there are times where he gets to sit in the audience and clap for me too. Yeah, so you guys take the string and swap, yeah, swap back and forth. we swap the string. That's, that's nice. That's really nice. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to go back a little bit because okay. I've always... I've always seen, I, I mean, we've met each other a few times. I don't know you super well, but we've had dinner a few times. And um, I, I've always seen you as so gregarious and so friendly and so sweet. I was wondering, um, it's, it's kind of a thing that I ask most of my guests. Um, what were you like in high school? Were you like the popular girl? Were you the um, like the music nerd? How I was, well, it was Tennessee, West Tennessee. I was definitely the music nerd. I was a marching band girl. And I was, um, my senior year, I was the drum major, which is the conductor of the marching band, Mm -hmm. but it has very little to do with conducting. Mm -hmm. It's more like herding elephants. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was the president of the marching band. So that, (laughs) 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 so I wore a marching band uniform. Um, And those were my people. And I think it's because they were the musicians in West Tennessee. You know, very few of them went on to be uh, professional musicians. Right. But in that space, they were the musicians. The band room and the band directors, over the course of my years there, there were three of them, I think, were all inspirations to me. And if you could have have marched with a piano, I would have done that. But uh, that Uh wasn't an option. So instead, what I did was um, I learned the clarinet starting in about the fifth or sixth grade. And by... And were you already playing piano? I was already playing piano. Yeah, deeply playing the piano. Wow. Um, But I really think exactly what I said. If I could have just continued the piano through high school, I would have. But Mm -hmm. there was no way to do that in school. So I, and we didn't have a theater program in my high school. Or I I might have found that sooner. But so I found marching band. And I, um, I learned the clarinet. And then I... When I say I mastered it, I don't mean I mastered it like I could have played on a professional level, but Mm -hmm. well enough in the marching band, you know, and clarinets don't get a whole lot of solos. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Um, But I got bored pretty quickly. And so then the clarinet leads to the flute and the saxophone pretty easily. They're similar and the fingerings are similar and Mm -hmm. the types of instruments are similar. Mm -hmm. So so I learned the flute and the saxophone and played the saxophone and the jazz band and some years played flute. And then by the time I was a sophomore, I was like, bored again Mm -hmm. and I thought you know what I'm going to do I'm going to learn all of the instruments oh my god and I asked the band director at the time I said if I wanted to have a solo in the marching band what what instrument should I learn and and it was a she she said you should learn the trumpet or the mellophone which is the marching French horn because they get the solos or the trombone but that wasn't interesting to me at the time Mm -hmm. so I learned the mellophone because I didn't want to compete with the trumpet boys who were all like playing as high as they could yeah yeah um so I learned the mellophone and got a solo, and then played the French horn the following year um, in the concert band. 
And then I was like, well, now I know the mouthpiece. The, the mellophone uses a trumpet mouthpiece, so I'll learn the trumpet. And then it was like a mission. So I learned the trombone and the tuba. Holy cow. <laughs> Not really well enough to play, but I know the fingerings. I know. Um, and I made my way through the marching band. I never spent any time in the percussion section, but mm -hmm. everything else, I learned how to play every other instrument in the marching band. Unbelievable. And I think that's part of why I became a composer. It was because I know how these instruments work. Orchestration it started to come easily to me. That was like my next question. Yeah. I started to think, um, like, I know what the woodwinds would be playing. I know what the, what the brass would be playing. Mm -hmm. I've sat in the sac sections of those. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all the transpositions. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I think that started to make sense to me and, and led to me thinking, well, if I can play them, why can't I write for them? I can hear the flute line. I can hear the trumpet. Is that when you started composing? I started composing in high school. I went to a summer music camp for five weeks um, and studied piano and clarinet and we had to pick an elective and I picked composing and so over the course of that summer I wrote I wound up writing a piece for my roommate who played viola so mm -hmm. I wrote a piano viola duet and performed it at parents weekend when my parents came um, and that was the first piece I'd ever written that was performed and people clapped and I was like oh they're clapping for me and I made something and this is pretty great that's amazing and I also got performance anxiety as a pianist like <sighs> not as an accompanist but as a soloist, really? I mean, I still never get anxiety if I'm playing for someone because I figure the audience is watching them. Yeah. And I'm just, even if it's it's more like a duet, I'm still very much not the center of attention. Did you ever have a performance in which that really uh, affected you badly? I've, uh, cause I've I did. A, no, I've I, got a I, few stories I myself. I do. I mean, I had, I, I would say, a definitive jury, uh, final exam, music final exam jury in college. Mm -hmm where I was playing, um, I don't even remember, it was Bach. I was mm -hmm. playing something, and I lost it. I couldn't figure out where <sighs> it went, and I improvised. I, yeah. I, in my piano jury, in front of the piano faculty at In Vanderbilt. the style of Scott Joplin. <laughs> no, in the style <laughs> of Bach. I mean, I, I improvised. In I just continued to play around yeah, yeah. until I landed somewhere familiar, and sure. then I finished the piece. And I was like, this was my final exam, and I made it up. Um, and I think to my... To their credit and to my, they knew that I wasn't a piano major. I was a composition major, mm -hmm. and they scored me accordingly. I mean, I didn't get A's, but they also didn't fail me. And I, my piano teacher, my primary teacher said, "Well, that was a very creative piano jury. Yeah, yeah. Not what he wrote. Yeah, but clever of you to find your way back, and you know, whatever I got. Um, but I, in that moment, I was like, I don't ever want to feel like this again. This, this it's mortification it's awful, it? it's on awful. stage. Yeah. And I think you have to have failed in performance that way to to know what you're afraid of. Yes. You know, there's, ugh. and for me, it was really, I feel like that was when I was like, well, I'm not doing this for a living. I don't want to be a solo pianist. I don't, I don't really ever want to do this again. Um, and I think it is part of me as a singer too. I'm a limited singer. And I think it's, as if I'm singing, they're looking at me as yeah, opposed yeah, yeah, to yeah, yeah. in a choir, not so much, but as a soloist, like they're looking at me and I just don't look at me. Let me write it and give it to you and you do it. Let this them look at you. This has been an ongoing thing for me. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because oh, I think absolutely. of you as someone who's mastered that. Absolutely. No, no. I mean, I went through, when I was in college, I uh, sang the, the second or third major role that I sang was Tamino in Magic Flute. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and during the overture, every night I would just start sweating bullets. Oh. My breathing would get high. I mean, I can I can feel it right now. I'm kind of, oh, God. Created yeah, 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 yeah. It really comes back. And um I would start to not hyperventilate, but everything would get high. My throat would get tight, and, and the rest of the night was a real struggle. And, um, you know, I ended up going to a, a therapist for it, for a performance anxiety specialist. Um, I still struggle with it. I mean, I just recently, cr LA Opera hired me to do this uh, um, preview mm -hmm. for some of their shows, and uh, there was one performance I just crashed. Like, my voice just wouldn't work. So I and take, what did you do? Well, now I take beta blockers, mm -hmm. and uh, it's been incredible. I, I'm not saying that it's uh, it's it, it's the cure all, but it doesn't make me feel like um, I have to sprint away as fast. I, you know, I used to sweat through a, a suit coat. Mm -hmm. You know, I, it was really bad, and um, I know a lot of theater people that swear by beta blockers as well. I mean, every time I hear that, I'm like, oh, right, that's what I'm supposed to yeah, do. Yeah, I took half of one before you got here. <laughs> <laughs> because I make you so nervous? Yeah, I mean, you never know. You know, I want to be, be cool. Um, so it's really interesting to hear that you, that you have a, a similar, I don't want to say, I don't know how similar it is, but that when you're, you know, for me, so, uh, part of the trap for me, and it rang true when you said they're looking at me when I'm playing, when I'm singing... Um, as a principal or singing in a recital, um, I try my best 
to be the character mm-hmm. and kind of trick myself into thinking that they're judging the character, which yep. which oftentimes oftentimes helps me perform better just mm-hmm. in and of itself. I'm wondering and if it gives you freedom to be absurd or ridiculous or exactly, make a big choice or exactly. And it's not me and my reputation and what they've heard about me before they got here and what they expect. And I, I, you know, it's a, I you have to just let that go. You have to. I mean, it's it's an impossible task, but you do have to. But you still get. Do you still get nervous when you're when it's just, or do you just not do that anymore? I don't. I don't. I can't think of the last time I just played a classical piece of music on the piano uh-huh. alone with people looking. I, I mean, it's more than 20 years since I've done that. Now, you played at Disney Hall the day before yesterday. Were I you did. playing the piano? I was playing the piano. And you yes. weren't nervous for that? I wasn't nervous at all. Really? Because I was, I was accompanying the choir. I mean, there are a couple of page turns that are like tricky and the nego- like there are moments where I got a little anxious, but I never got the Not about you, breathing. though. Yeah. Not about your ego, your personality. It's more about where do my fingers go and how do That's I turn right. the page? That's right. Uh-huh. I, I hired Jason to be my page <laughs> in this case. <laughs> so he was holding the string that night. <laughs> um, but, but also, I think if they're judging in this case, they're probably judging, I mean, honestly, what I thought was they're probably either judging the writing that I did or they're judging how I look. They're judging my dress and my shoes and uh, my hair. And, and, and at a certain point, that's what I get anxious about before going on is, am I wearing the right thing? Am I, do I look right? Is, it, am I, is this an appropriate thing to wear for this event? Yeah. And then once you're on stage, it's done. Mm-hmm. And now you just have to perform. If I had been singing, I, I might not have recovered yet. It's just too much for me. Yeah, and, and I do have to do it. I mean, I do, you do. in order as, as a songwriter for the theater. There are many occasions where I'm singing and playing my own songs to try to get people interested in them. You know, I to see. like create. You know, like if I were saying, yeah, like I a wrote showcase, a song for a you. Showcase, Here, let me sing it for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes that happens in a public setting, like at a reading or a presentation or a concert or. You know, you I don't get, usually do you, record myself singing. You get uptight doing those I get, things? I get, yeah, and I don't know bit. enough. I know enough about singing to help an actor, to coach an actor into a better performance. Yes. And I can even say technical things that I know about how the voice works, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't have a really great control over them in my own voice. I don't think I'm a very good singer. But I can sing well enough to communicate. Of course, to, to demonstrate. But please don't ask me to do it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I've got Omio Babino Caro here. I'd like to hear. Oh, yeah. What's the <laughs> Saturday you, Night Live? Don't make me sing. Don't make me sing. Did you bring any Mozart? That's what, that's, uh, <laughs> that's what I always hear. And did you bring any Mozart? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's, there's something. I hate to be jumping back and forth. That's all but right. when you, you were talking about um, kind of. I don't want to say, do you ever, do you ever find, uh, let me preface this question because I ta- I spoke with Josh Winograde yesterday at mm-hmm. LA Opera. I don't know if you know Josh. He's the uh, artistic administrator. So he hires all of the singers for the productions, sometimes years in advance, sometimes a few months in advance. One of my questions to him was, do you experience people that are unreasonable or behave like divas of the 1960s? Um, is that even acceptable? How do you explain that? Do you do? You, I mean, this is kind of a strange question, but uh, you kind of mentioned it a, about the, the the thing in Singapore, which was just between you and Jason. But do you ever find yourself? Um, and I'll, I'll tell you, I do. I um, I get really uptight when I travel, and I sometimes don't behave nicely. To oh, you're to, the diva. Stu- well, I, I try not to be. I mean, I really try not to be. Um, <clears throat> but for instance, like when I was in South America over the summer. I had stepped on a stingray a week oh. before the trip, and my foot was getting infected in, in Uruguay, which was pretty n- terrible. And um, so I found myself under a lot of pressure. I was in physical pain. I was dealing with some difficult music. I was in a foreign country. I was by myself. And I found I did find myself kind of you know, snapping at people when I really needed something. Do you, do you ever... Um, do you travel enough away from home for that to affect you or uh, is that something that you are conscious of or do you do you worry about people seeing um, behavior that you don't want on YouTube and that kind of stuff or you uh, I mean I'll be really honest with you I think I mean you said yourself that when you thought of me you thought that I was cheery and happy and yeah 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 that sort of thing and I I think that is that is who I am to the world Uh and I I think I, I really believe if you asked people who've worked with me, they would say that that's who I am uh-huh. in public. I think my husband gets the brunt of it because I think I'm cheery and light in the world. And mm-hmm. then when I call him on the phone or when I come home, it's, uh-huh. you know, he uh-huh. gets the, and, and sometimes he, 
he says, you're, you're making me the bad guy in this. I don't think you're really mad at me, but you're snapping at me about things that, because you couldn't snap at the rest of the world. That's right. And I think that's very observant of him and I apologize publicly for that <laughs> <laughs> horrible <laughs> private behavior. Um, I th- honestly, what I think it is, is I grew up in the South and I think there's a uh. Southern Belle thing that is at war with this feminist thing right. that, um, that is like, you can be strong and you can be forward and you can ask what you want, but you do not have to be rude and you should always be ladylike. That's right. You know, that I hear my mother and my grandmother saying those things that, um, what is it? You can, you can get more flies with honey. You know that. You That's not the truth. And it really, I have found it to be true that That's right. more doors open if people think that you're going to be pleasant and they'd like to work with you than if, oh, she's impossible. But, um, and so I do find myself being, and it's not even really that conscious. I think it has just worked just itself part of into my are. personality. Mm-hmm. That it's it's more fun when you have a positive outlook and you're cheery and light to people. Mm-hmm. Um, if people are incompetent, I get very um, condescending, mm-hmm. and I that's the ugly in me. Yeah, I'm the same I, way. I'm if, the same way. If you have even once proven to me that you don't know what you're talking about, I will write you off <laughs> and look for the person above you that does. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I can, I think I can be pretty snippy and nasty in those situations, but even nasty is not, I don't think anybody would say that I turn into a diva in those situations. I do you see that in, the, in your job? I mean, do you come across people? I have people? certainly worked with people that mm-hmm. I would, you know, categorize that way mm-hmm. and, and some absurd behavior of people like, requiring you to change things over and over and over again at their whim mm-hmm. and and ultimately because they have power they um you have to keep doing it yeah and, you know you don't even know if they're acknowledging or care about the work they're just pulling rank mm-hmm. and um and musicians who are like the amp's not right the temperature's not right the blah 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 is not right and yeah. you're like, can you please just play the music and we can leave like <laughs> that's right um i certainly see that around and um and and I think what I try to do when I'm the one in power, like when you just told that story about the you, what you started with, I had stepped on a stingray. And so yeah, what I try sucked. to do yeah. is assume there's, that there's something going on. There's some story that this pr- probably isn't just a nasty person, although sometimes it is just a nasty person. But I you try know, to... this is what Josh said. Really? The same thing. I just try to assume that they've got something going on that's making it very difficult for them to be here today. Yeah. And I get out of the way. And how do you... How do you um, I think Josh put it this way. He said, um, I need to, I, I go to them and I put my hands on their shoulders and say, what can I do for you? That's and it's almost right always nothing to do with the temperature or the dress or the, it's about being heard. It's about being alone on the road. It's about uh, getting in a fight with your spouse 10 minutes earlier. It's yes. about, sometimes it's about not knowing your music very well. And then it's insecurity. Sometimes on that 0.1% chance, it's mental illness where you just have to deal with a crazy person. Right. But, but um, that's the perfect response. And I'd say take that into all your relationships as well. Just yeah. that moment of looking someone in the eye and saying, what do you need? How can yeah. I help you? What you know, can I do for If you? somebody yeah. says that to me, I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> My foot hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I need to sleep. <laughs> Give me chocolate. Exactly. So <laughs> we have a phrase in our marriage... Um, you know, when you're driving along the road on a, you know, a mountain pass on an uh, interstate, sometimes you'll see a sign that says falling rock zone. Yeah, right. And it means that you're in an area where a rock could fall on your head. Um, Jason and I say there there are people that we know who live in the falling rock zone and rocks are always falling on their heads. Right. And and you can think of them. I bet someone just flashed into your head. Absolutely. A person that something bad Abs- things are yes. always happening to them. Yes. And you're like, how could this next bad thing be happening to you? When and they make sure to post it on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. it's just. <laughs> and so you can observe that people are in the falling rock zone. But if you get too close to them, the rock will hit you in mm-hmm. the head, too. Mm-hmm. And so once you identify a person that lives in the falling rock zone, you, you have to love them from afar. That's you have to right. give them support and stay away. And I think that's sort of how I treat the divas. Is like, I can be present for you and help you, but I am not taking that on myself. That's this is right. not about We're me. not going on vacation together. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not on a mountain pass. <laughs> you will get hit by the rock. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> so what do you guys have, uh, what do you have coming up next? What's... What's next on the horizon for you guys? When you go back to New York, what, how does that go? What, what's going to um, happen? Well, we're both in writing mode right now, which is great. It's, mm-hmm. it's funny when you're at a social event and somebody says, what are you working on? Sometimes you're like, oh, I have this event and this event and this event. And mm-hmm. right now we're both like, well, I'm hibernating to write a little bit. I have um, two musicals going into production next year, which mm-hmm. is really exciting. Wow. Um, one of them is a commission from Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. that is an adaptation of a novel called The Snow Child. Hmm. It's written by an Alaskan author. 
um, and it's about Alaska in the 1920s and this couple from Pennsylvania that moves there to homestead the land and they have just lost a child. Um, and so the big open expanse of Alaska becomes this metaphor for their grief and their loneliness. That sounds and lovely. It's beautiful. They, mm -hmm. I mean, in one of the opening scenes, um, they build a, a snowman on the night of the first snowfall and it turns out that they make a child and they wrap it up with a scarf and put a hat and, and love it and are sad and are grateful for each other but sad oh for the God, family you're kill me right I'll tell you since i've had wait, wait, kids wait. since i've had kids i cannot handle these kinds of stories <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry this go one, on i mean it's, I, I, you have to let me go or people think this is the most bleak story no though. no 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 but the um the next morning when they wake up the snow child has been knocked over but there are no animal footprints or anything i think it could a gust of wind have done that you know mm -hmm. and a few days later they see a child scamper through the woods and so the whole first act is um have they made a child have magically? Conjured, conjured have they conjured this, up uh -huh. a child? Mm -hmm. Or is there some explanation for this? And for the, for a big portion of the first act, only the wife can see the child. But the child becomes a character and sings and talks and interacts with the wife. And, um, and then near the end of the first act, the husband sees the child too. And so you still don't know like now are they both in extreme grief are or they dead are they, they're dead know, they're ghosts what is it <laughs> what is it but i think that's <laughs> the beauty of the writing of that this piece is that to make the audience wonder like not let the audience get ahead of you and the problem solving and yeah. tell the story in a way and um because it's alaska in the 1920s i'm co-writing the music with an alaskan composer who's a bluegrass musician wow. and he writes music on guitar mandolin fiddle and sends me mp3s of them like how I did write, you connect I, with this um the artistic director of arena put us together wow. she uh, she is from alaska and so this is a, a man she's known for 40 years. He runs the Bluegrass Festival in Alaska. I keep saying he's like the mayor of the town. Yeah. When I went to visit. The and Anchorage? I, uh, Juno. Uh, Juno. Oh, wow. Yeah. He, okay. knows, he knows everybody. He walks down the street. They're like, hey, Bob. Hey, Bob. And um, Alaska's beautiful, isn't it? It is so gorgeous. It's unbelievable. It is. And they the theater sent me there. And they said, if you're writing about it, you should see it. So he sent me there in the winter. It's so impactful. And I drove. We flew from Juno to Anchorage. And then we drove from Anchorage up to Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. And went to Denali National Park. Oh, and, so beautiful. You know, we're writing about... Um, about uh, caribou and mm -hmm. about uh, trees and mm -hmm. you know and there they were seeing them mm -hmm. the things that we're seeing so um, anyway so I write the lyrics and I send them off and Bob sets them and sends me mp3s of him playing the guitar and the fiddle and then I notate them and sort of turn them into musical theater songs and make the bridge do something different and write the vocal harmonies and like turn them into musical theater numbers right so it's been a really interesting co-collaboration and we're presenting the first the complete score in june in uh at arena in washington wow and then we have a year of development with like dance choreographer and orchestrations and all that and then we're in the season the following season. so it's the one in june more of a like a workshop it's an in-house workshop uh -huh, yeah I it'll see. be a, a reading of um of, it's just our deadline for having all the music and ready. how long will you be in alaska for that well, I've already been. I spent a week there mm -hmm. in Alaska. This The I development the will be in Washington, D.C. Oh, in Washington, D.C. Sorry. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then it's a co-production with a theater in um, uh, Perseverance Theater in Juneau. So mm. we'll get mm -hmm. to go there ultimately mm -hmm. with the piece. Mm -hmm. So I have that. And then I have another musical called Big Red Sun mm -hmm. that is a swing musical-ish. It's, um, it's about the 1940s to the 1960s and the, uh, the evolution of how much the music changed from the late 30s to the early 60s. In New in York? In America. In America, uh-huh. Yeah, mm -hmm. told through the story of a father and a son. So there's a 16-year-old kid in 1962 who's trying to play the guitar and write music, mm -hmm. and he's really, he's probably Bob Dylan. Like, he's going to be Bob Dylan. Okay. Um, and his father was a swing musician, and they're Jewish, so he's originally a klezmer musician who turned klezmer into swing and then had a swing band and then went off to fight and, and, and was killed in World War II. And mm -hmm. so it's the, the kid learning about his father um, and about how much, you know, my writing partner says the men who fought in World War II came home from World War II, or his father specifically came home from World War II. And I was like, what happened to Jerome Kern? Like mm -hmm. the music changed so much. Right. And in the 50s, it was so different. So when you think about that 20 year period of history and how much the music changed through the 40s, through the 50s, through the 60s, and as we head into the Beatles and then ultimately the, you know, protest music of the late right. 60s, mm -hmm. um, I can't think of another 20 year period in American history where the music, the pop music changed so much. So when John Jyler brought this play to me, um, and he said, I, it's a musical, and all these characters are musicians, and I was like, this is amazing. Like, what to create a theatrical score um, that, that gets to tap into all of those different styles but still has a unified voice. A through line, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that we're doing at a theater, 11th Hour Theater in Philadelphia. 
Um, we just did a, a three-night concert presentation of the score, and we're uh, going to do a full production next season wow. in Philadelphia. Congratulations. So those are the two pieces at the forefront. And there are other things. I'm writing an oratorio. You are? <laughs> yes. I'm writing an oratorio. Tell me about it. Um, I have um, I have two pieces written so far. It's uh, I, I don't even know what it is yet, except that what I have found is um, it's... I don't haven't got my pitch worked out yet. It's about what it means to be a contemporary person seeking God, when um, when we have such a global awareness of what God is and such a resistance to being called religious. And, are, and are you religious? Personally? I grew up Presbyterian, uh-huh. and I have been very active. I was the composer in residence at this church mm-hmm. when we lived in LA. Mm-hmm. I do not currently go to church, mm-hmm. and so I think I am religious, and I think I You're am a spi- in and spiritual out spiritual person. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think I'm Protestant mm-hmm. and Presbyterian, mm-hmm. but I am in a sort of out of touch phase right now. I will probably find my way back, but I right see. now I am not. And no, I, my I, husband's I asked, Jewish. Yeah, I didn't grow up in the church at all, so I I find that really interesting. But it's um what I I found an old text that um was an old hymn where the music was very staid and boring mm-hmm. and the text was very vibrant and alive. And I thought, wow, what the, would you hear this text if it was set in a different way? Mm-hmm. So it's in the public domain. So I just set it for a contemporary, I set it for gospel choir and Titus Burgess, who is a singer who is such a high tenor. He's an alto. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I haven't heard it yet, but I mean, I've played it for Titus and he and I are working on it, but I was like, this exists. It's a four and a half minute piece of music. But it's not just this. It's part of something. So right. what is it? So if you take, is it a, at first I was like, is it a bunch of hymns that I reset in a contemporary way? And that's what the piece is. But now what I'm more interested in is if it's all old text that expresses something universal and contemporary about God, mm-hmm. what is that? So now I'm looking at texts from all the different world religions and how we all say the same thing. We're right. all seekers. People who are religious are all seekers in the same way. We just have different ways to get them. Gandhi has a great quote about how all of the world's religions are ultimately seeking the same thing. And instead of dismissing another person's religion, if you can see it through the circumstances they grew up in and what was exposed to them mm-hmm. when, when they were seeking God, mm-hmm. you might understand why they chose that path instead of the one that you chose. Right. And if we could all be that open, we perhaps would be less divisive as a world. Well, so that's what I'm tr- you know, just that. That's what idea. people need to hear these days. I'll <laughs> tell you. So that's what uh, that's I'm at the very beginning of trying to figure out what that is. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, listen, Georgia, I'm so glad that you came by the house. Thank you for my inviting me. My very official recording studio, <laughs> otherwise known as the dining room. Most recording studios look like this these <laughs> days. <laughs> it's really nice to see you. It's nice to see you, too. Thank you for including me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming. Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up playing any instruments. or uh, So hearing your story I was, is really fascinating. But I bet you, you grew into your voice. I mean, there are many people that I think, especially from a theater point of view, if you... Um, if you don't come into it till you're 30, you've sort of missed your chance to play the ingenue roles and that sort That's of thing. That's right. But yeah. for you, I imagine that you were just sort of coming into your voice. Yeah, when at I at that f- point anyway. When I, I mean, I took a class. I had dropped out of college and I decided to go back. And I'd been accepted to UCLA's creative writing program. I was a, a writer. I'm still a writer, and um, I couldn't get. It. I mean, it's a long story, but I, t- I couldn't get the class I needed at Santa Monica College. So I took a singing class. And I had wow. sung, you know, I'd sung like in the car or in the shower, like everybody, everybody does. And um, by the end of the semester, I auditioned for a scholarship through the state of California and ended, ended up getting it. And um, all the teachers kind of rallied around me and, you know, helped me with piano and figuring out how to read music and theory. And, um, and then I auditioned for conservatories and I, I had a really good choice of places to go, and I ended, I chose Cal State Fullerton based on the teacher. I found a teacher that I really liked, mm-hmm. and John Alexander, who I I don't know if you I don't think I ever know. worked with John. He's a choral conductor in Orange County uh, with the Pacific Chorale. Oh, and um, you know I uh, so I've I've always been interested in uh, so it's two it's two sided. I have a real. Um, thirst for new things and learning how to do new things and technical things and artistic things but I have trouble sticking with it that's oh that sounds familiar you're not a Gemini are you no I'm a Sagittarian okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah, yeah the other side of the spectrum but it's very similar mm-hmm. you know I'll start something and then I'm like oh, I don't know just, right you know it didn't so I'm really trying to stick with this podcast and I um, find even with writing I have learned about myself like if I let's say if I'm writing a four minute piece of music I can get about three minutes and 40 seconds into it yeah and then I'm like mm. 
And I really consciously have to do things like, you're not allowed to eat dinner until you finish this piece. I do the same thing. Or you, you, know, games, you can't yeah. stand up from the piano until you've written all the accompaniment for this section. Yes. You know, little games, because otherwise I'll be like, oh, what's on Facebook? What's, you know, I'm like the same way. really procrastinating. And, and I notice that when I'm the most procrastinating, it's because I'm very close to the end. It's like something about finishing it feels like well, then I have to s admit that I did it yeah. instead of saying oh I'm working on it I'm is it a judgy it. thing for you like are you because for me it's a judgmental thing uh it's probably it's probably judgmental it probably is I, I don't know if I've thought that deep into it for me explain um, what you mean well okay like for instance with this podcast I, well, I have a I have a, a, I have a I have conflicting problems I'm a procrastinator I'm pretty lazy <laughs> and I'm a perfectionist. Oh, that sounds like a perfect and combination. It's really, it's really tough. So what happens is I start something. I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't want to boast, but I will a little bit. I'm pretty good at a lot of things, mm -hmm. and I can do things quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but then the the bloom kind of fades a little bit. Um, so with this podcast, I have deliberately put up the very first things I ever did, which are terrible <laughs> you know I, I really I didn't know what I was doing I still don't know what I'm doing but I've decided to not judge myself based on what I think and recognize that that's narcissistic and recognize that it's not only narcissistic but irrelevant to what I'm doing it doesn't help me do what I'm doing at all mm -hmm. so I'm just putting it all out there people like it fine if people don't like it fine and that's a that's a I'm 46 years old and that's like a first for me mm -hmm. um Oh, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but that's that's why that's why I'm doing it. And I'm I'm kind of when you ask me that, I'm I realize that I'm just I'm at the same time discovering still why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And it's applying to other parts of my life. I mean, this is only the I think I think you're the ninth or the tenth interview that I've had. And it's only been a couple months. And I'm still I'm noticing that, oh, I can I can go out and sing and it might not be perfect, but it's still interesting I still have something to offer I'm not a terrible person or some kind of mass murderer if I crack on a high note well, I think that's a cultural thing you know I uh, had a conversation with someone just a couple of days ago who has uh, children one is in college and the other is graduating from high school mm -hmm. and the the one in college is doing very accomplished things and the one that is graduating from high school the father said I don't think she's going to go to college. I don't know what she wants to do with her life. Mm -hmm. All she likes is listening to music. And I support her. That's, so yeah. let's figure out how she can just listen to music. Yeah, yeah. And I found it so interesting to hear a parent say that um, coming out of both New York City and L.A. where there's this sort of hyper-achieving, overachieving yeah. drive to make your child superstar. Um, and what he said is not all not all kids, you know, there's he said we are raised to make to want our kids to be the valedictorian. And I knew when she was six that she wasn't going to be the valedictorian. Mm -hmm. She made it very clear she had no interest in being the valedictorian. And so I'm just trying to support her as she figures out who she's supposed to be in That's the world. Right. And, and I thought that is a really interesting way to think like they they don't all have to be valedictorians and we don't all have to be val valedictorians. You know that ultimately what you want to do is put good things into the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to think that I value people who create things, people That's who right. make things, but not everyone does. Not right. everyone can make things, and that doesn't make you less of a person. It's just my kinds of people are makers. Um, and then people who are, are trying to see good in the world and make change and, mm -hmm. and support the things you believe. You know, all of those things to me are more important than whether you made an A on your test or whether you're a valedictorian or whatever that is, right. whether you cracked on a high note or not. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to... I'm trying to instill in my son. I mean, he's only three, and uh, you know, he might end up designing motorcycles. I mean, I don't know what he's going to do. Nobody really knows what their kids are going to do. But I think the most important things to me is instilling a value and enthusiasm for life. Yes. Uh, and and for learning, mm -hmm. and for ex experiencing, and for experimenting. And I think our culture puts so much um, emphasis on winning, mm. and we're not prepared to fail. No, that's another problem is sure. uh, music has taught me how to fail and to understand what what the concept of failure is and the concept of winning and you can't have one without the other you can't you can't and this has been a problem with me I, th I think with the the aptitudes that I have I up until this point really didn't allow myself to be okay with failing um, and I think that's where my um, 
fickle nature comes from where I start something and then not finish it because then there's a, a chance of failing and it's you can't fail if you don't finish something yes I think and, that's at the key uh, at the center yeah and so this uh, it sounds corny but this podcast is helping me uh, you know I really I'm really doing this for myself more than anything frankly <laughs> and then with the conversations that I have with people you know something revealing comes out in the person I'm talking to and then that triggers something in me and then we have a conversation about it mm -hmm. and then the people listening can say oh my god you know georgia stitt has this thing and i i love her like she's a i really look up to her and she has this thing and wow i'm, I'm gonna be okay mm -hmm. and that's important to me to well, kind of demystify say, things a little bit oh no i live in the falling rock zone <laughs> <laughs> anyway thanks for this little addendum that was really really sweet yeah. i appreciate you coming thanks again thanks Disgrace with fortune and men's eyes. I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and 